Welcome to the first episode of the Straight to the Point podcast, Anti-Vaccination Associations. I'm your host, Isaac Lindenberger, and today you will hear a conversation between myself and two others who know the anti-vaccine movement very well. Our first guest is Dr. Peter Sears, brother of the popular anti-vaccine doctor Bob Sears, who is well known for making Dr. Bob's alternative schedule. Dr. Peter Sears, on the other hand, is pro-vaccine, and while he does not discuss his brother, we do discuss common misconceptions related to vaccines with a formerly anti-vaccine mother, Christina Denit. So please welcome them both and enjoy the show. Okay, we are live. So, welcome everyone. This is the first episode of the Straight to the Point podcast, and we are going to be discussing vaccines in a broad range of topics related to immunizations. Today, we have two special guests. We have Dr. Peter Sears and Christina Denuit. How do you say that? Close enough. Yeah. Close. Awesome. So, yeah, thank you both for coming on. Thank you. Yep. Thanks. Good to to chat. Yeah, I'm excited for this. So, okay, let's start by getting into the introductions because this is everyone pretty much knows who I am. So let's explain who you guys are. Personally, just a real quick aside, I have an anti-vax mom Mm -hmm. and I have a pro-vaccine brother. And with that strange family dynamic, I try to get along with both of them because, Mm -hmm. you know, One's my brother, one's my mom. I care about both of them. So I try to see things from both sides. And so that's what I think both of you also do. So that's Mm -hmm. why I wanted to invite both of you on because we share that sentiment of trying to see things from a unbiased perspective. So in terms of your experiences with vaccines, let's start with you, Christina. What are your experiences with vaccines? What's been your ideological kind of journey with understanding vaccination? Um, well, growing up, I, as far as I remember, I got most, if not all of my, um, you know, the expected vaccines and the very least what you needed uh, to get into school. Um, had my first son, didn't really think anything of it. Uh, however, um, I, I'm terrified of needles as it is. So I didn't really want um, I didn't really want um, the epidural, so I, that led me to um, a uh, Facebook group that um, you know helps with going unmedicated. And um, long story short, in that regard, uh, it introduced me to the fact that there weren't people that vaccinate, or there were people that didn't vaccinate. Um, I didn't really understand it, but you know, I didn't think anything too much of it either way. And um, uh, you know, they had a bunch of uh, things that seemed kind of kind of scary, kind of um, questionable. And uh, I still had continued to vaccinate for quite some time up until my my eldest was about a year and a half. Um, he actually missed his uh, year appointments uh, because um, I had some medical issues that were going on. So um, that prevented me from making that year appointment. I got his 17, uh, I got his 12 and 18 month uh, vaccinations done at 17 months. 
Um, and starting um, three or four weeks after that, he had a almost three-month bout of just constant um, throwing up and diarrhea. And um, nobody really seemed to know what was going on exactly. Um, I mean, nobody questioned vaccines. And, you know, at the time, uh, you know, at first I didn't either, to be honest. Um, but as time went on, uh, just the fact that, um, you know, there was no other explanation. And it seems like everything is goes back to vaccines. So, you know, you spent enough time in those groups and especially the things that have no other explanation. Um, you know, it's it starts to make you wonder if maybe it could be. And so I spent my, probably three or four years after that convinced um, that it had to be that there was, there was no other option. Um, and uh, after a couple of years, um, I actually ended up getting into a fight with one of my best friends uh, from junior high. And um, it hurt. I was about at a point where um, we quit talking. I wasn't willing to stay friends with somebody uh, that I thought was heartless because, um, you know, it's, it was terrifying those three months, there was times where I literally, uh, there was times where I literally thought, you know, I was going to leave my son for a few minutes and I was going to come back to him dead because he was vomiting in his sleep and it wasn't waking him up. So I was afraid that he was going to asphyxiate on his own vomit. Um, and uh, it just seemed that she didn't, um, she didn't care about this when in reality she was uh, just more aware of the, um, of why it was, wasn't very likely to be vaccines. Um, and that was kind of the catalyst uh, to me um, joining a vaccine talk. It's a Facebook group. For those of you that might not be familiar, um, it allows those that, that are on both sides of the spectrum and anywhere in between um, to discuss uh, vaccines. And I had tried joining uh, prior, didn't have a real great experience. Um, I'm not sure now if that was really, um, if that was, because I just wasn't actually ready to change my mind. I was um, kind of where I am now in the sense of, you know, if I changed my mind, I changed my mind. If I didn't, I didn't. Um, I was open to the information either way. Uh, but being anti-vax at the time, um, the first time I joined, it felt uh, primarily like I was being attacked. And, um, you know, in retrospect, I'm not really sure if that's, if that's the way it really was. Um, but I went in, you know, wanting to better understand the Provax um, perspective when I joined again. And, um, you know, especially with all this fear of mandatory vaccinations coming, um, you know, whether or not that actually happened might be a different story. But if mandatory vaccines did become a thing, I didn't want to still have this gut-wrenching gut -wrenching fear of vaccines um, that I did uh, at the end of this last year. Um, so I stayed, uh, in vaccine talk. Um, I think I just kind of watched, uh, the post for the first month or so. And then I got pretty active. Um, I think in like January or February, um, asked a lot of questions, um, and slowly started to see, uh, that a lot of the stuff that I thought, uh, thought about vaccines, um, it was true to a point, um, but a lot of it was um, 
was caused by misperceptions and um, no half-truths. And uh, some of them were just blatant lies. Well, not necessarily lies, but it's like the game of telephone. You get this partial truth here, or you get this truth, somebody else hears it, they pour it on, and then so on and so forth. And then, um, you know, same as the game of telephone, you have this initial point, and it's been turned into this completely different situation that has nothing to do with where it started. Um, and uh, after seeing almost every point of the vaccine um, debate, you know, kind of refuted, it uh, led me to have a more open mind or more open mind and um, to take it more serious to start looking into um, the anti uh, anti-vax perspectives that were coming along, if that makes sense. Yeah. Wow. That's quite the journey. So when did you start looking into, when did you join Vaccine Talk the second time and start to look more into the other side? Um, I think that was in either November or December of last year. Wow. So that's really recent. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, that's very interesting. Vaccine Talk has actually helped me a lot too with learning information about vaccines. That's actually where I met Dr. Sears was in that yeah. group. So speaking of Dr. Sears, Dr. Sears, I Thank wanted to ask you the same right. question. Sure. Okay. Uh, real quick, on the side, someone's saying it's set to friend. That's why I was trying to wave that they were saying it was still set to friends only and not public. Oh, okay. That's why I really tried to wave because that popped up. I'm not sure if it's still set to friends only or not. All right. I will try to fix that while you, uh, okay. what was the question? Sure. Oh, yeah. What's your experience with vaccines? So um, I'm a um, uh, family family physician, board certified family practice. Starting off, um, I'm sure a lot of people listening in know the Sears name. And um, so I uh, finished med school in 2002, and I um, went into a, what's known as a medical residency, which is you know your chosen specialty. You know whether it's surgery, pediatrics. So I did a three year family practice residency at the uh, University of Tennessee in Knoxville. Uh, go balls. Um, but uh, so, um, so that was during the time, I mean, 2002 to 2005 was a pretty, pretty crazy time for what was going on in the world of vaccines. You know, the whole Wakefield paper had come out and, you know, there's this whole big fervor, you know, fervor over that. And um, so, you know, it, so of course, you know, a lot of, a lot of people, a lot of things you'll hear in anti-vax, a very common thing you hear is that medical students and, and young doctors don't get any, you know, they, 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 they quote, you know, they get a half hour class on vaccines and meds or something like that, which is just utterly wrong. I mean, in, in so many ways, I mean, you know, in med school, you study immunology, you study virology, you know, biochemistry, epidemiology, and you're also in doctor's offices as a medical student and people don't really realize it. And a lot of what goes on when you do rotations in pediatricians offices and family practice offices, as a, even as a student in the first and second year, you're talking about vaccines, you know, I mean, obviously not just the schedule, but um, so as a resident, fast forward to 2002 to 2005, you know, um, our program really took it upon themselves with all that's come out to say, Hey, we need to we need to make sure our, our residents are looking into this. And is there something to all these, all this, you know, some of this data. And so, you know, we were really challenged to do that. And, and, um, and so really in the past two decades, medical education, educating young doctors, especially pediatricians and family practice docs who 
who who immunize almost everybody in the, in this country are, are more than educated on vaccines and not just the schedule. And, and yeah, I mean, we, we, we know the data, we see the, all this. So, so it frustrates when I see that, but anyway, so going, getting back to that. So I, I graduated or I got my, finished my residency in 05 and um, went to, back to California and worked with my, my father, William Sears, and my two brothers who are, they're all, all three pediatricians, Bob and Jim um, was there for a couple of years. And, you know, we, we uh, vaccinated in our practice, um, and uh, you know, uh, you know, we certainly had a, a percentage of um, of individuals who, who who did not or did the alternate schedule. Um, but then I was I was called back to in, uh, in in so I was there for until two thousand eight, and so I decided to move back to Tennessee for various reasons, and uh, I love the Nashville area. So um, in two thousand eight, I found um, a, a a community health center which. Community health centers, for those who don't know, are um, places that work that are set up in usually underserved um, uh, underserved areas, either in metro areas or rural areas where people don't have as much access to physicians. Um, and uh, or and and these centers cater to lots of Medicare patients, but also uninsured patients. So um, I found a clinic there. There's a program. Um, that's a national program called Vaccines for Children, or it's also known as VFC. It's a government-run program that provides low, low cost or free vaccines to these types of community health centers. And so um, one of one of my big jobs, well, basically other than running the clinic, was actually running that program, Vaccines for Children, um, which I did for seven years. So we, I mean, obviously we were a very busy clinic, um, you know, administering, you know, thousands of thousands of vaccines over that time. Um, and so, you know, I mean, I came just with, with through my experience with with the data and, and and knowing the research. Plus, on top of that, my just my real world um, experience, uh, you know, has has had me, uh, you know, in the you know very very much a pro vaccine advocate. Um, and so, and that's what I, you know, uh, and I was I was there until a couple of years ago, and then decided to kind of um, change tax to a little bit more of a private practice uh, situation. But I think I. I'm uh, eventually probably going to get back into the community health uh, um, setting because I really enjoy that calling. So that's a little bit about me, I guess. Yeah, awesome. So you've experienced the effects of vaccines firsthand. Um, in terms of your experience with administering and experiencing vaccines, yeah. how often do you see adverse reactions? And also, how often do you see preventable diseases that could have been prevented from vaccines? Sure, sure. Well, so um, as far as ad, I mean, I guess it would depend on you know what do you term an adverse adverse reaction. Um, what you know, far and away the most common things we would see would be um, pain at the pain, redness, swelling at the injection site. Um, obviously, some increased fussiness, you know, for a day or two. A um, little bit of a fever. Uh, child not sleeping well for a few nights. As Christine, you're probably well aware of these kind of things. Um, you know, and in in rare the rarest instances of things I saw, um, nev- at no point have I ever witnessed an anaphylactic, life-threatening, immediate reaction to a vaccine. That's that's something I've never seen. That's something most colleagues I talk to about have have just never experienced because these are literally one in a million reactions, and you'd really expect most physicians not to actually witness those just because they're so rare. Um, you know, we had several instances of of fevers. Obviously, um, several instances of, fe- of febrile seizures. Um, I, a few days up to maybe a couple weeks after the vaccine, but in many of those cases, 
um, the children had also developed, you know, a, a, an ear infection or some other kind of illness that may have been attributed, that may attribute to the febrile seizure, which are very quite common. They, they can happen up to 5% of kids and they're self-limiting, stuff-limiting and not, uh, not serious, but they're, they're frightening, you know, obviously. Um, so far and away, though, as far as the most serious adverse events that could potentially attributed to vaccine would have been febrile seizures, which, which there is a slight increase in the rate of, vac of, of uh, febrile seizures following the MMR vaccine. That is, that, is a, that, is, that is documented, but it's still very rare. Um, about one in 2,500 kids, only one in 2,500 kids that received the MMR vaccine will then suffer a subsequent um, febrile seizure. So it's, you know, again, I, I didn't witness any, any of these horror stories you hear about of sudden regressions. Um, you know, my child was fine and then, you know, is shortly diagnosed on the spectrum. Um, you know, and again, no, no anaphylactic reactions uh, and, and, and nobody turning into the Incredible Hulk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is, that, we'll, we'll definitely be bringing that up. That is a, a adverse reaction in VAERS. So did you see any preventable diseases in your clinic? I mean, you were mainly administering vaccines, right? But sure, sure. Um, I, um, so I've seen, um, I can count on, I think, in, as, as in 18 years of practice, I've seen three cases of chicken pox, all in un unvaccinated kids. And I've never personally seen a patient um, with, uh, with measles, although our practice um, in California did ha had some issues with very small uh, numbers of that. But I never personally actually saw, saw a patient with, uh, with measles. Um, rotavirus, rotavirus uh, definitely, and we, maybe we'll talk about that a little bit later. Um, but I saw it before the, the, you know, that the, the, the vaccine we use now came was introduced in 2006. So um, I guess technically I saw a lot of VPV, vaccine preventive illness before, before we had a vaccine to actually prevent it. Um, now let's see, um, you know, the cases of pneumonia, um, just a few, but they never actually were able to test to see whether it was a strain that was actually in the, uh, the pneumococcal vaccines. Um, so, you know, really to, to answer your question, hardly ever in, in a, in a, in a children that are, vac are vaccinated on, on the schedule or even, or even just um, in a slightly altered schedule. Okay, thank you. All right, so now everyone knows a little bit about all of us. So we can start getting into some of the topics we wanna to discuss. Sure. So let's start with risks and benefits. So. I'll, um, we'll start with Christina this time and get your thoughts on this. And then we'll go over to Dr. Sears. We're bouncing around a little bit. So in terms of risk versus benefits, even if you believe personal stories about vaccine injury, the point is there's a, there's a small group of people that you're talking to. You're probably mm -hmm. seeking out other people who have vaccine injury. Um, you know, you're, you're creating an in-group where you have all these friends who think similar things. And it can mm -hmm. appear like it's a bigger group than it actually is. So that's something important to keep in mind. But at least at the very at the very least, if you're concerned about the risk of vaccines, you should also consider the benefits and make a cost benefit analysis. So, Christina, in your experience, you probably saw a lot about the risks of vaccines. But did you see a lot about the benefits and any balance of that discussion? 
Um, okay, you can still hear me, right? Yes. Okay. So, um, you know, obviously when I was, uh, I was very staunchly anti-vaccine for, um, you know, like I said, anywhere between two and four years uh, after I had made this, come to this conclusion um, that it was vaccines that caused this horrible long-term experience. And, um, you know, I spent a lot of time in uh, these groups that were supposedly, uh, supposedly um, intended to educate people about vaccines. And when you hear um, all these stories, it's like you said, it's easy to, um, to think that they're running rampant. And um, it wasn't until um, I joined Vaccine Talk, um, I had seen, you know, you know, a little bit here and there about some of the benefits or like the seriousness of these uh, diseases. But when you hear over and over and over and over again, um, you know, this disease is just this, this or this, or that disease is just this or this. Um, measles is a really good example. Um, you know, the the illness itself may not be super serious in the vast majority of uh, people and children. But then you have the situation that arises of, um, I can't remember what it stands for, but you have SSPE, which um, I had come to find out affects around one in a thousand children or people that have developed measles. And so far, the rate is either at or very, very close to a 100% fatality rate, um, opposed to, um, you know, even if, um, I'm not saying it is or isn't, I don't, you know, I can see where both people on either side of the spectrum feel about that, about whether or not vaccines cause uh, death. But regardless, um, it's nowhere near one in 1,000 of those that do end up, that of those that do, um, you know, get the vaccine opposed to a hundred percent fatality rates. Um, and then, uh, you know, going to the polio vaccine, you hear about how the polio vaccine didn't come down or come around until polio was already in the decline. And, you know, it doesn't make a lot of sense when that's all you hear. And, um, you know, deaths are going downhill, but then, um, those that are getting polio are still, still have a very, very high rate of paralytic, paralytic polio. And um, the thing that the polio virus did is it significantly decreased the level of um, polio cases where the end result was paralysis. Um, and, you know, you've got other vaccines that um, those are the two that really st uh, stick out, um, as well as the Hep B vaccine. Um, you hear, uh, you know, people think of hepatitis B and think of a sexually transmitted disease. And, um, you know, it's true to a point, but it's a blood-borne uh, pathogen. So you don't have to be having sex or injecting, uh, you know, drugs to come across it. Right. And, um, you know, realizing just how many different ways um, you can actually, it's not super likely, no, but, um, you know, realizing just how many different ways you can potentially contract it, and the fact that, I think the statistic, I don't remember offhand, but I think the statistic is one in three children, give or take, have no idea where they 
developed, um, where they developed hepatitis B from, and a significant portion of those that uh, develop it as children, um, I don't remember if it's death or if it's just chronic, um, chronic infection thereafter, but it can, um, those that do develop it have, um, have the potential to have, you know, very serious reactions from the hepatitis B. Right. So the risks of the preventable diseases are almost never touched upon. They're very minimized. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, these things are harmless, but vaccines are very dangerous. So uh, Dr. Sears, in terms of risks and benefits, it seems like when you acknowledge risks, it increased trust to a degree. Because if you say there's no risks ever, people don't trust you. But right. it seems like the risks are very exaggerated in those discussions and the benefits are very undermined. So how do you try to have conversations where you balance those topics out? Sure. And that's obviously a very uh, valid concern, or, or or at least it's a very normal concern for parents, obviously. And um, so really, just before I touch on that, uh, one thing I wanted to mention about, you asked about the vaccine preventable disease that I'd seen before. One that I complete, I can't believe I blind, was uh, whooping cough is actually something oh. that's still common and um, seen, seen a lot of whooping cough in my day. And, and that's, you know, even amongst vaccinated individuals. And, and there's a lot of reasons, but it's actually not a great vaccine. And that's why we're encouraging adults to get boosters to control these outbreaks. But that is one. And, and if you're going to say, if, far and away, the most vaccine preventable disease that, that we're still seeing is, is certainly whooping cough. Because it's just frankly, it's not the best vaccine, really. And it used to, the, in the 80s, the vaccine that was, that was causing all these reactions, they changed it and made it took it from the whole cell vaccine to the acellular. In so doing, it made it a lot safer, but also made it a lot less effective. So that's, mm. uh -huh. that's kind of a little side note. But um, so risk, you know, and also briefly, Christina, you mentioned the SSPE being one in a thousand, but some newer research is actually saying it might be closer to about one in every 600, actually, cool. of the, of the uh, devastating. So, so they're actually finding more data as they're seeing measles around the world is, 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 is making a big comeback. There were 140,000 cases last year of measles around the world. So they're, they're getting more data on SSPE and they, they, they think it's a lot more prevalent than they used to think. But anyway, so, so when I'm talking about risk benefits with my patients, um, I, you know, I say, you look, not, nothing's hundred percent safe there. That's, that doesn't exist in life. You know, <laughs> you know, I mean, we could, you know, um, I mean that, that's just, that's impossible. We we we've I think we've reached a point in vaccinations that we've gotten pretty darn close, but there's just nothing in life is 100%. And um, but but when like you said, Christina, when you point out all the potential um, complications uh, of all these uh, and BPDs, I'm just going to refer to it as those. Um, uh, you know, far and away the risks, the the benefits are far away outweigh the risks. In in um, in, in when I look at the data. I'm evidence-based practice. That means I, 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 I practice based on the literature and, and outcomes that I've, that I've seen, my colleagues have seen over, over decades. Um, and I give a good analogy, actually. I say, well, you know, you're worried about risks of vaccine, but, but, but far and away, exponentially, the most dangerous thing you're going to do today is drive your child from your house to my office and back to your house. You know, and, and so when you think about these, these, we make decisions every day in life that are far and away more risky than, than vaccinations. And we just, we don't think about that, but 
it just because it's it's every part of everyday life. Right. I've heard um, if there's no side effects, there's no primary effects. <laughs> Very, yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I mean, the part of the reason we have these side effects is the vaccines doing what, you know, uh, doing what they're supposed to do. And in a very small percentage of people, they may experience some type of anaphylactic reaction or something like that, but it's just so incredibly rare. And the data just really shows that. So, but, but then of course, this, you know, I know we just, we want to discuss the, the topic of vaccine injury I know is, is on the list too. So I'll let you, I'll let you, I'll let you go on with, with what you want to talk about next, Isaac. Perfect. So, okay. Thank you both for that. That was pretty good. Next, I want to talk about, before we get into some of the more gritty details, evidence and knowledge. So when one seriously considers the benefits, they do realize they outweigh the risk. If you're making an objective analysis, at least from what I can see, and that doesn't mean you can't think about the risk, but you should probably realize that you're not an expert, right? So you can understand something to a limited degree, but it doesn't mean that you are very proficient in it. And so I think that this, let's see if I can get it coming up here, is a good representation of that. So sorry for the 3D effects here, but here we go. This is the Dunning-Kruger effect. Can you guys see this on screen? Dunning-Kruger effect. Yes, I can see it. Yes. So what this says is, as your knowledge in the field increases, at first you, have, you don't know anything. But at, when you know a little bit, you think you know everything. Then as you start learning more, you realize the field's deeper. Then it's starting to make sense. Then as you know a lot, you realize it's complicated and you don't know as much as you maybe thought you did. So in terms of that, what do you guys think about what have you guys experienced any similar have you experienced that at all in your practice peter oh, absolutely i mean let's look <laughs> immunology and vaccines are really 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 complicated i mean i'm often, i mean one of the most difficult courses i took in med school was immunology it's it's incredibly complex and trying to trying to dilute it down you know to a bare bones thing is is really really almost impossible and mm. so you know you have well, well-intentioned people that go online looking for vaccine research. And I mean, if you go down one, one of the wrong rabbit holes or get involved in some of these very, you know, dubious um, Facebook groups or websites, um, you're going to run into a lot of people that claim to be experts or they, you know, they claim they are, they've been in the medical field for this and that, but they never really say what it is they do. I mean, it's so it's, right. You meet a lot of experts online <laughs> yeah. and it's just, I tell people, it's just, it's, it's incredible. I mean, there are people that do this for a living and, and they, you know, and they'll be the first one to tell you it's, it's incredibly, incredibly complex. Right. They know the most of anyone. They say they know little it's right. a sign of a true expert. Christina, um, in terms of your experience with understanding vaccines, did you feel more confident when you knew objectively less information? Um, it still kind of goes back and forth, to be honest. Um, mm -hmm. However, uh, you know, you don't know that you don't know what you don't know. <laughs> right. And so, you know, realizing, coming to a realization just how complex vaccines really are, um, like Dr. Sears was saying, um, you've got, uh, you know, multiple classes or courses that you have to take. Um, that 
directly are directly relevant to vaccination. So even though they don't have a course strictly for vaccines and you hear doctors don't have a course for vaccines, what? <laughs> They're injecting right. my child with this and they don't take a class on this? You don't even know, right. And it's like, well, no, they don't. And this is why. And so realizing just how complex um, vaccines are, because even, you know, growing up, children are explained the basics of, um, you know, there's a virus in this and it's put into you and it creates this immune response to help prevent, um, you know, this this illness or this disease. And that's about the basis of the um, understanding of, I think, I'm not going to say, you know, everybody in the anti-vax movement by any means, by and far. There are some very intelligent people in there, um, and yes, there I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to say otherwise. Um, you know, it's part of the reason that, you know, I, I am against um, mandates because, you know, you need to come to a certain understanding um, to have a view either way. And uh, I feel like mandates would kind of close people off to be would close people's willingness um, to look into the situation on either end of the spectrum and yes. would, you know, just kind of close them, you know, make them bear down on their views. Yeah. Because it's, it's like reactants. Like they mm -hmm. are told that they can't think something and you want to think it more, you know, you want to explore it more. And like you said, you have a lot of, you know, intelligent anti-vaxxers. I'm friends with many anti-vaxxers you know i i get along with them pretty well and they are smart and that's what brings me into my next topic for discussion so that's what you brought that up perfectly um trust intelligence and information so i think this is important because in thinking about what you trust you should think about why you trust it so possessing reliable and accurate information it isn't about how smart you are it is about who you trust and that's why there are so many smart people in the anti-vax movement. And there are reasons to be distrustful of conventional reality. I have my own quarrels with the modern paradigm, but vaccinations have proven themselves. So let's go <clears throat> to this little thing over here. Uh, you guys might both find this kind of interesting. Okay. Love that 3D effect. All right, here it is. So why misinformation is about who you trust, not what you think. And this goes into this guy who didn't wash his hands for over a decade. So that's a thing. So I encourage people to look into that. And I have that resource. That's gonna, All these resources are going to be in the comments and in Vaccine Talk after. But I want to talk to you guys about that. So Dr. Sears, how do you think about what we're talking about now, how you can be smart, but it depends on where you put your trust and in your sources, really. Well, absolutely. And I, and look, I mean, I think that um, <clears throat> one of the, one of the big reasons that a lot of people have come to sort of be mistrustful of vaccines or what their doctors are saying about vaccines stems partially, at least in just a general mistrust of the medical establishment um, in general. Yeah. Um, not just about vaccines, but just really about a whole lot of things. And I think that, you know, for a lot of years, we were 
we were practicing medicine in a, you know in, in the wrong direction, just focusing on treating disease and not the whole patient. And one of my one of my prime focuses in practice is is um is preventive medicine and integrative medicine, which kind of has the whole patient in mind. But I think that that's I think that I think that people already that maybe are more in the anti-vax camp. I think already maybe started from a an, a, a place of a of, of a innate mistrust of the medical medical field, and I think maybe for some people it may just tend to snowball. Maybe it has a snowball effect, and and vaccines are you know kind of low hanging fruit that that are kind of easily attacked because you know you have because everybody gets them you know and or most people get the and. So I, I do think that um, you're you're spot on. I mean, I I have a lot of a lot of discussions with very intelligent people, um, and it's just like you said, who are you trusting? And and um, having that maybe, and maybe this just gets back to the fact that you know patients and doctors, and and I think I think today's pediatricians and and family doctors that are administrating vaccines, the younger generation, are do make more of an effort to engage. The parents, you know, um, questions and and uh, you know and trust and and I think back in the day when you hear these online horror stories of the doctor just yelling at the parent or or speaking down to them, um, I would at least hope that maybe that was a doctor of kind of maybe the more the more of the old guard type of of, of person. So I think that's never a constructive conversation. No. <laughs> um, so I, I, I feel like um, it's we, we, we need to do better in, in that in, in communicating with with our with our parents uh, and and and, um, and and kind of rebuilding that trust. I think it's going in that direction because you do see vaccination rates in most parts of the countries are on the rise, but another part their refusals are also up. So I think we are making progress. Yeah, I think we are too. And if you approach people who have skepticism about vaccines with empathy and respect, then you're going to get a lot further than than treating them like they're not a person with realistic thoughts and concerns. It's going to push Absolutely. you even more into their personal views. So, Christina, what have you experienced with this? Has your how did your trust shift as you started to learn more information about vaccines in general? Did you um was that part of the whole vaccine talk experience? Did you have this skepticism against the medical industry as well for starting out? Um, I couldn't really give you a pinpoint of when I, you know, stopped, uh, not really stopped. I didn't uh, ever like just blatantly not trust the, um, you know, medical community. I'm kind of a hybrid in the sense of, uh, you know, uh, I live in the middle of nowhere. Like I, I, we joke in my family that we live 20 minutes, 20 minutes outside of the middle of nowhere, because I literally like we're 20 miles outside of a town of 60 people. And then from there, it's another hour to the nearest Walmart. Oh, gosh. So we uh, when I got together with my husband, um, I had always known that he wanted to move back here and um, being so far away from, uh, you know, any medical establishments. Um, I wanted to start learning, you know, how to handle things at home because I, I've never been that parent um, that wants to run their child to the doctor for every sneeze or every sniffle. Um, and I wanted to start learning, um, you know, before I ever had kids, ways to handle things at home. And um, I, I'm not sure 
what it is exactly um, about, you know, being holistic like that, um, about trying to avoid the medications and prescriptions. Um, but it seems like a lot of those um, communities are more prone to believing in the anti-vax uh, rhetoric. And um, I think after seeing, you know, these same statements by so many different people over and over again, you know, you're in these groups and a lot of times they have thousands of people in them. So you see this, these same comments from not necessarily from thousands of different people, but from a group that has thousands of people in it who are at differing levels of participation. Um, it's easy to start, uh, you know, questioning um, your own, you know, your own mindset and your own thoughts and perspectives that you were exposed to previously. And um, I guess at a certain point, um, I think we're really bad about um, really informing people in general about some of the, even if they are small risks, um, the risks associated with a lot of medications and a lot of procedures and realizing when I came to start realizing that a lot of times, um, you know, it's a blip in a conversation, these risks, um, it made me start, uh, you know, it really, you know, almost launched me into the rabbit hole of anti-vax information because, um, you know, it's all, it's all about, you know, informed consent. And, um, but the thing is with informed consent, it's only informed consent if you're actually getting legitimate information um, on both sides of the, on both sides of the spectrum and enough to make that truly informed decision. And, um, you know, are there risks? We've already concluded that there are. However, um, there's not enough conversation on why these, why the benefits outweigh the risks in these situations. Um, I think I answered your question, but I may have gotten yeah. off a little bit there. No, that um, was good. That was good. I think that's true, actually. The um, risk versus benefits is unbalanced, and I'm hoping to balance that out with this show, and I think that's what we're doing now, so that's fun. So, okay, in terms of biases and heuristics, right, if we're trying to understand how we perceive the world, and within that framework, what's true, we need to understand our lens on our perception, because that's how we interpret information. So I think one thing that could help is bias saliency, showing people their bias, because it can help you hold more objective and nuanced positions when it comes to emotionally charged topics like vaccines. So that's kind of where the empathy and stuff comes into play, but also recognizing how you view things. Have you experienced this at all, Dr. Sears, with showing people if they're kind of hesitant with vaccines that they've got a certain lens that they interpret the world through that they might be able to notice? Yeah, that's a, I mean, that's a really excellent point. I think, you know, one of the hardest things to overcome in, you know, whether you're talking about what you think about a certain topic, or if you're talking about looking at a medical study is what, where's the bias in this, in this study? I mean, then there's a, there is a whole laundry list of different types of biases and we encounter it every day. And I think it's really, I mean, in, in many cases, you could argue it's a certain amount of bias is really inescapable. I, I, I think, I mean, um, I you would agree with that. You know, and, and so, you know, when you have issues, but, but, you know, you, what, what sometimes I think what happens with, with some folks who maybe are more on the other side of maybe on the fence about vaccines or, or, or very much anti-vax, 
Um, they, they are a victim of what we refer to as confirmation bias, where they just actually right. go looking for data or, or evidence that supports their preconceived, preconceived uh, ideas or, or what they believe to them to be. And so I think um, that's a good stepping off point for a discussion, though. I think, you know, where, you know, say, well, if, you know, if you're if you're spending all your time on in one, a, a few Facebook sites and looking at studies from that, you know, that's kind of a narrow view. And, you know, I do my best to review as much as I can in the, in the medical literature and, and also what's around in the in the popular, you know, literature of, of this, you know, and. You know, I, so I think, you know, that that's a good that's a good point. That I think that a lot of people just and I think maybe this is human nature. If they have a certain preconceived idea of something, they're more likely to find more evidence to just reinforce that. That right. That you belief. can probably tell it by simple Google terms by are no. do vaccines kill or do vaccines save lives? I mean, those two Google searches themselves are going to affect the information that you find. So. That's why it's yeah. good to try to disprove yourself instead of prove yourself. So I and see that's I made the I made that choice a long time ago, Isaac. I said, you know, I would approach this from the standpoint that that vaccines may be harmful, and I want to I want to come at it from that from that from that standpoint. Put myself in in the other in the other person's shoes. I think I think if we do that in many areas of life, I think we can learn a lot. <laughs> so. I agree. Um, and uh, but I and 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 I also think that that's also then gets back to the empathy you were talking about how then maybe somebody who's more skeptical and and not quite sure about you know this 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 doctor that wants to inject my kids but if you engage it in that way I think I think you can really build a lot more trust that I agree with that and um, I've seen that for myself with dialogue with my own mom um, you know I actually we get to talk because I listen and that's the first step to a real conversation so. I think that's enough about perceptual aspects of this discussion. Uh, let's get more into the more objective information. So vaccine court, I think that's a good place to step off of that from. So interestingly enough, vaccine court was actually requested by anti-vaccine activists in um, 1980s, the dissatisfied parent union. And I have a lower burden of proof. They pay your lawyer fees. So there are a lot of benefits to vaccine court. The anti-vaxxers actually asked for. And now it's evidence that big pharma is poisoning your kids, which is ironic. But um, you also can sue the manufacturer. Um, but you have to go through vaccine court first. So I'll show you guys both some evidence about this. Okay. Here we go. So this is information about the vaccine court. Okay. All of the links will be in the comments later. But um, yeah, it's an interesting this. program. Yeah. So this is the Dissatisfied Parents Union. They drafted the Vaccine Act. And um, this is where it says that you can still sue the manufacturers after. And few people choose to because their awards are so good in vaccine court. And they wanted it because it generously compensates victims of vaccine injury and improves vaccine safety. But now it's evidence that against vaccines, even though it was requested initially. So I, I thought that that was um, 
you know, and it's it's interesting. It's an interesting. uh, Can you hear me? I can hear you. I can't see you. Go ahead and try to to rejoin real quick if you can. Just um, exit real quick and then and hop back in. But I'll talk to Christina about this real quick. So, Christina, what have you heard about vaccine? Um. Well, the uh, it's a quite a common claim. Well, not it's truth, but it's it's only partial truth in regards to the fact that there's been. Um, this was back in uh, January, I think, when I last looked. So I'm sure it's quite a bit more than this now. Uh, sorry, my husband had to bring my son in um, You're good. into the room I'm in. So and it set the cat off. So I apologize uh, for the background. Um, That's fine. But there's a quite a common, um, you know, mention of the fact that there's been uh, like four point, uh, you know, well over four billion dollars in, um, in uh, awards regarding uh, perceived vaccine injury, and um, there's not a lot really talked about um, in regards. Uh, one way or the other to uh, give information about the burden of proof and um, not a lot of uh, it is easy to um, believe and what was that? It's like a scary figure like four billion dollars but then no information have you experienced that a lot Dr. Sears with the don't you know about four billion dollars and then no information about how many claims. Ah. I mean, like talking points, you know, on, on you know, the over, you know, $4 billion award. And, and it sounds like a big, and it is a big number. That's a lot of, that's a lot of, that's a big number, but you have to understand this was, a, this was established in 1986. This is, it's been around three, almost 35 years. Right. So when you look at it, it, when you really look at it from that perspective, I mean, there's other, I mean, you know, when you talk about spreading $4 billion out over a 35 year period, it doesn't quite, it loses a little bit of its, of its uh, punch in terms of the amounts. Um, it's still a large amount, don't get me wrong, but this is, and, but over that 35 years, it's about, I think around 6,000 cases hmm. uh, awarded. So, and I think if you break that down, that's, that's, a, that's a, right. And that's a, that's a large amount per, but, but what if you, if during that time, it's a interesting little numbers game that I I worked out that I I worked back and said there were during that time there's been approximately six billion vaccines given in this country six billion over that time and you've had six thousand cases awarded in the VICP program vaccine court so when you look at it what does that number work out to that's one in a million oh that's what's on the CDC website actually. Oh, wow. What do you know? So, I mean, if you take the 6 billion shots that are given during this time and the 6,000 awarded cases for these severe events that may have been related to the vaccines, that's that literally works out to one in a million, one, one adverse event possibly related to vaccines for every million dose given. Right. And, and- there is research to suggest that a, a majority of them, as much as 70%, they really could never prove that it was the vaccine at all that really actually caused the adverse event. Yes. And so that's actually what I wanted to bring up next, um, because if you talk about the numbers of the vaccine court, people will bring up VAERS. And in terms of VAERS cases, 
there's only a 3% association with VAERS reports and actual vaccine injury. There's gunshot wounds in there. Um, drowning is in the insert. Um, there's one person put a VAERS report that a vaccine turned him into the Incredible Hulk. So I, I got to show you guys this because it sounds so made up, but it's not. So, okay. First off, it's casualty it. with vaccine reactions. This is the paper. 3% of reports are definitely casually related to the vaccine. Over 50%, there's like no way. And um, here's information about over-reporting. So minor reports are underreported because why would you report a rash? But over-reporting like death is um, definitely a problem. Then you have things like this where this guy reported that he turned to the Hulk and they accepted and entered it into the database. So, you know, that's something to think about. So, yeah, VAERS so. is, is not a good game. VAERS is not, not useful at all in assessing vaccine safety in any pay. It's, it's an independent reporting system, but it's useful because it, it the CDC can use it to, to track trends. If they start seeing more reports put in VAERS, of a certain rent that allows them to say, well, maybe we need to look into that. Right. But it's definitely not something that you can just look. I, I mean, if it is, then maybe vaccines do turn you into the Hulk. And, you know, I'm fine with experimenting that thesis because I'm not the strongest, but <laughs> yeah, it's not, it's not something that seems so reliable. So Christina, how often did you see the, um, their cases that, you know, just look in VAERS and you see, all these potential vaccine injuries, even though there's so many reports of it. Does that get brought up a lot? Definitely. Um, that's another thing that really kind of uh, kept me, um, you know, on that anti-vaccine end of the spectrum for so long. You hear about VAERS all the time. Like, that's literally, that's all you hear about. You don't ever hear about, you know, in the, these anti-vaccine uh, predominant uh, predominantly anti-vaccine groups, the fact that there's there is other reporting systems. Um, I had no idea until I think like two or three months into being uh, in vaccine talk that they actually do have a reporting system uh, that automatically watches um, people's uh, medical records to pull out basically um, potential reactions or serious events that happen. I didn't know that. That's very interesting. I'm I'm wanting to say it's the vaccine uh, safety data link. Um, oh, or that is that. Project, I think. Yeah. Okay. It looks like Dr. Sears is affirming that. Um, and uh, so that really, um, you know, you have all these uh, reports that are in VAERS, and you know, it looks scary when um, there's so many different. Um, reports, some of them very serious. And uh, so that really helped. Um, that's another thing that really kind of helped. Um, I, like I said, you, like you've mentioned, um, I'm still not totally pro-vax, but I'm, I'm definitely like, I'm not, you know, I'm almost entirely on the opposite end of the spectrum. And that, that fact alone really, you know, brought some peace of mind. Um, the fact that there is a system that keeps an eye on serious events to check for any casualties or any casual um, relationships between these events 
and um, and vaccines because it's you know got an algorithm that works to uh, uh, it's got an algorithm that works um, to put those correlations together to um, so that doctors and scientists and researchers know that this needs to be looked at. Right. So in terms of actual vaccine reactions, um, that not in the VAERS, but actual reported reactions, so these are adverse reactions, they seem to happen, but they are rare. And so the benefits of vaccines are hard to recognize because if a vaccine works, nothing happens. That's the point. So you don't see anything. It's hard to realize, oh, that worked. So it's kind of hidden in plain sight. Have you experienced um, any of those claims in, in your uh, practice, Dr. Sears? Well, yeah. I mean, like you said, it's like basically vaccines are a victim of their own success. I mean, you know, we don't see these yeah. VFDs. Um, the vast majority of kids that get them, they don't have, they don't have any terrible ad- adverse outcomes. And so they're kind of, like you said, hiding in plain sight. Um, you know, a lot of my issues is, is, is kind of working through people who maybe had felt there was maybe some potential vaccine injury that really can't be proven or anything. But as far as that, you know, as far as, um, you know, we, well, I mean, I, I did touch back, touch on the adverse events or adverse reactions that I've experienced in, you know, in the beginning, but, um, again, you know, it's, that's why these reporting systems are important. I mean, because it's, it's, uh, you know, it's important to have the data and have these, um, you know, public reporting systems available. It just have to be taken with a grain, you know, with a, with a grain of salt. <laughs> yeah. Know. And the data is there, <laughs> the real adverse reaction. So we can it's, actually find that. Um, this is linked as well, but it's about one in a million. Uh, you mentioned the, Furbo seizures, which are probably the most common, but still very few in every 10,000. And everything else is between one and 20,000 or 100,000 doses. So, yes, adverse right. events happen. And that's worth saying so that people realize you're being Absolutely. intellectually and, honest. But you've got to emphasize like that they're so rare. Well, and, and probably the, 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 the scariest, you know, the scariest and most frequent of the really rare are the febrile seizures that you know, has been shown in the MMR is, is it's in one in one in every 2,500 cases, which, you know, is still extremely rare, but it's, it's, you know, it's, it's unsettling. Absolutely. Um, But, uh, you know, they're, they're benign. So it's, you know, but. Yeah. And you already mentioned the paradox of success. Vaccines work so well. Uh, we don't see the diseases that we're vaccinating against. So how often do you hear, oh, well, measles isn't a problem anymore. No one has died from the measles in 30 years. So why do I need the vaccine? Talk to some, uh, talk to some parents in Samoa about mm. that. Well, that's actually fitting because that gets into the sanitation and hygiene argument. So most people will say, oh, Samoa, they don't have good sanitation and hygiene, right? So here's... This is an interesting point, um, and then I'll ask you both what you think about this once it's made. So sanitation and hygiene is something I hear all the time when it comes to vaccines. But the problem with that is the correct measure is disease incidence, not deaths, because all deaths did decrease 
from vaccines. You can see here, this is measles. All deaths decrease at the same rate because of sanitation and hygiene, right, from deaths. But if you, and it looks like the vaccine wasn't even necessary. But if you look at disease incidence, right, this is graphed over, the cases of the disease don't drop until the individual vaccine. And on this website, Graphical Proof Vaccines Work with Sources, you can actually see the cases all only drop after the introduction of each individual vaccine. As you can see in polio, the year is different. And um, even in different countries, diphtheria, the year is way different. Um, but all the deaths decrease around the same time. So that's why you need to be making sure people are including the metric of disease incidence. So you hear all the time sanitation and hygiene, but you're not getting the full story. So uh, Christina, have you experienced that um, argument a lot? Like it was sanitation and hygiene that solved all the problems. Vaccines were completely ineffective. All the time. Um, and uh, well, frankly, um, I know this is a little controversial here, but I think we're really seeing, um, you know, yeah. you know, with uh, this whole coronavirus thing going on, um, if that were the case, then, you know, regardless of whether or not um, the, you know, death rate is um, being manipulated to look one way versus another, they are, the virus is still spreading. And, um, you know, if that, if it were just about sanitation and hygiene, um, well, frankly, we wouldn't have the rights that we do regardless right. of, you know, regardless of how it's turning out, um, it wouldn't be spreading the way it is if right. that's all there was to it. And, and um, um, and I don't think a lot of people are taking into consideration the different forms of transmission. Um, ah. illness and disease. Right. Um, and uh, it's it's just interesting to see whenever you talk about the third countries, sanitation hygiene is always brought up. But you could even see data that um, the diseases are still only dropping with the vaccination introduction. So, Dr. Sears, how often do you hear this argument about sanitation and hygiene and mortality rates? It's a very common one. Um, you know, I would argue, though, that you could look at some more recent um vaccinations we we kind of have this idea that a lot of the a lot of the vaccines that are on the regular schedule have been around since forever and this and that but a, a great example to start with is the um, haemophilus influenza b vaccine the hib is what it's known as and that's only been around since 85 and then they did they they revised it and made it better in 80, 87 so we're not we're talking about a vaccine that's only been around about 30 years um prior to, prior to the vaccine you know Hib meningitis was far and away the most common bacterial meningitis in the pediatric population, and uh, it it um, caused over ten thousand hospitalizations a year, and usually about a thousand deaths a year from meningitis. And we're talking about in the seventies and eighties. We're not talking about a time when sanitation, you know, we're not talking about a time before running water or plumbing or this and that. Right. And 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 I have a good little story. My my dad, uh, uh, William Sears, he he was uh, when he was in in working in hospitals as a pediatric resident in the in the sick in the in the mid to late '60s before there was a Hib vaccine. There'd be they had they had a Hib meningitis vaccine ward in the children's hospital. They had an entire wing, wow, little 
dedicated to children with hip meningitis. And, you know, the devastating disease, I mean, you know, two to 3% mortality rate, 10 to 30% of, of kids who got hip meningitis would have long-term complications, a devastating illness that we just got under control in the mid to late 80s. So let's not kid ourselves here about this whole hygiene argument that that's all we need and we don't need vaccines to keep kids healthy. Another one is the rotavirus vaccine. I mean, the, the, you know, we've, the one we're using now has only been around since 2006. And prior to that, um, you know, you had in, in the U.S. In, in, a, in a more sanitized, hygienic environment, every year before that vaccine was introduced, you had 55,000 to 70,000 admissions, hospital admissions of kids with rotavirus. And now there weren't that many deaths. There's only between 20 and 60 deaths a year, but we're, we're not just concerned about deaths. We're concerned about kids being in the hospital, especially in this day and age with coronavirus and we're trying to reduce hospitalizations and keep hospital beds open. So, and this is a vaccine that's been around for not even 15 years yet. And you, if you wanna make the hygiene argument, you know, rotavirus is definitely spread by poor hygiene. And we're still seeing that in this day, but if you see cases of rotavirus now, of hospitalizations, I, I'd have to get up the numbers, but I mean, it's, it's vast, drastically reduced. I mean, between the 55,000 to 70,000 kids a year prior to the prior to the vaccine, that's only been around for not too long. So that the, the sanitation and hygiene argument just, it, it just doesn't really do much for me. I don't think there's really any good data to, to show that, um, you know, and, and, and look at the measles outbreaks in last year in America in, in the undervaccinated areas, you know, um, you know, these are, this is in, in a first world country. Right. It's the problem that they're reducing, it's reducing mortality overall. And so everyone's just saying that's all we need. And like you brought up perfectly, it's not quite enough. So we, we, okay. care, more, we care more about, we care more about, we care more about just the, we care a lot more of, of complications than just death. <laughs> right, right. There are still serious long-term effects, you know, permanent lung damage, not not something we want for everyone. So I do want to talk about coronavirus and the vaccine for it um, briefly. I know none of us are experts on that, but there are some things that should be said. Uh, the last thing I want to talk about in terms of vaccine safety is ingredients. So um, a lot of people are afraid about toxic ingredients like formaldehyde and different ingredients and in vaccines that can look scary and can appear like, oh, why would that ever be in a vaccine unless they're trying to poison us, that kind of thing. But if you actually look at some of the research on some of these ingredients, um, adjuvants, antigens, all of that, we'll stick with formaldehyde for now, you can actually see a baby has 12 to 240 times more formaldehyde in her blood than in any given vaccine shot. And so even if you say injection is different than ingestion, that argument doesn't hold because this is already in their bloodstream. And the reason is because formaldehyde is important for DNA synthesis and um, the dose makes the poison as simply as that. And so it's, it's hard because these ingredients look frightening, but when you have all of the information, you see that there's really nothing to worry about when it comes to this kind of thing. Yeah. You know, I mean, formaldehyde is a very simple molecule. It's <clears throat> carbon, hydrogen, a couple of hydrogens and oxygen. Um, Dose makes the poison. Is it's very simple, like you said. It's not about it's not about the the name. It's about how much we're dealing with, and we're dealing with trace amounts, <clears throat> forty or fifty times more higher in an infant at any one time than any than it's any shot. You know, similar arguments for the aluminum salts and adjuvants, but 
Um, I mean, you know, Google the ingredients of an apple, you know, and they'll have a bunch of scary words on them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I just saw an, uh, I saw a post about uh, the ingredients of a banana and someone yeah. just had the ingredients and said, would you put this in your body? And someone said, no way. I would never put that in my body. It's an apple, but you just don't know because it looks frightening. So you can give that tone to just about anything. Um, how about you, Christina? How have you um, seen the the scare tactics kind of in the memes that say, oh, look, would you inject this? Um, yeah, definitely. Um, and I think it was I think it was Dr. Sears that said this. I, I heard it didn't quite process who was talking. I apologize. Um, but like one of you two said, a lot of these ingredients are already in your body. And um, I think maybe both of you mentioned it. And, um, you know, it's already in your body. It's already in, um, you know, the foods we eat, our environment. And, uh, you know, learning more about the way that the body processes uh, these ingredients um, that are in vaccines helped a lot as well. Um, such as, like, even the um, even if, uh, you know, even if aluminum salts were dangerous in large amounts, um, I think I'm pretty sure that's the one anyways, uh, that I was one of the things I had looked at is, um, you know, even if uh, it's dangerous in large amounts, the way that the body processes it with the vaccine is there's such a minuscule amount of processes um, in, a, you know, in any given time frame that it's, you know, virtually the same as if uh, you were getting it via, um, you know, other environmental factors, um, you know, such as eating or, you know, breathing, the, you know, the air in the city, at least. Highest contributor to the body burden of aluminum is breathing. So if you really want to avoid it, just hold your breath. Works. So, uh, okay. Yeah. It works. Yeah. It'll work for a short amount of time. So I, I think that's a good um entry point into COVID-19 so coronavirus is scaring a lot of people and that is the vaccine for it is no exception so in terms of COVID-19 the vaccine um Dr. Sears this is kind of going to be rapid fire at you let's see so do you think there will even ever be a coronavirus vaccine because they've tried to make one before and they haven't successfully made one before what do you think on that well, you know, as you may have seen it, the, the one of, a lot of people are talking about from uh, Moderna is uh, now just entering phase three trials. They just announced that um, they were going to start phase three trials, hopefully shortly, <clears throat> which is really the final stage. Um, and they're looking to, uh, they had a smaller group in the phase two. It looked promising. So now they're looking to uh, recruit about 30,000 people, um, um, about 30,000 people uh, for the phase three trials. And then, then that's, I mean, you're still looking at probably about a six, eight month, you know, maybe less um, process for that, where they'll divide them into placebo group and, and uh, ones that will receive the shot. And, and there's over a hundred that are in the works. So I'm, I'm actually hopeful. I mean, I think if you talk to most ex, most experts, they, they are hopeful with the way the vaccine, the structure of it. And um, uh, there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, uh, optimism about it uh, about whether or not now how 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 effective will it be how long term you know what how long term are we talking about that's nobody has the answer to that right still kind of up in the air so what do you think about the microchip 
Do you think it will have a microchip? I think personally that if it has a microchip, it will freak people out and reduce um, the confidence people have in the vaccine. I think because of that, people are aware of that. I don't think we'll have a microchip, but um, any thoughts? Well, I don't think there's going to be one in the vaccine. I, mean, I think they've talked about but, yeah. tracking people who have received it or not, but I, I really, <clears throat> I, I'm just, I, I, I don't really uh, look at that too much. I mean, I, I think that's always something you want to be aware of, you know, with surveillance and, and all that is certainly a concern, but um, you know, I, I see a lot of conspiracy theories going on about the, about the, Chip and Bill Gates and all that. And yeah, I, I th I'm hoping it's not in the vaccine. I don't think that's even possible. I don't, I don't think, think the, they would. The is not. I don't. I don't think the technology is there to do it. Yeah. Right. So. so yeah. Bigger can, fish. We cannot worry about that. Um. Unless it turns out being a thing, but for now, no evidence. Um, this is a good question. And Christina, you have an interesting thought process on this because you're against mandates. So, oh, you're good. I'll, I'll ask Peter first. So most yeah. vaccines are only mandated for public education and workforces such as medicine or military. So do you think that there's any reason that this vaccine would have the mandate expanded onto additional sectors of public life, such as workforce and travel? Because it seems like if it, that happens, it might generate some reactants to the vaccine. Right. And, uh, you know, and that's, that's a difficult, you're referring to just the, just the COVID vaccine right now, Just right? the COVID vaccine, right. The, the mandatory you know, so, um, nature. Yeah. So there are a couple of interesting things you'll see. If you, if you look at polls about, from Americans about who, if they, they've been asked, you know, would you receive the, the COVID vaccine? And the rates are as low as 50%, as high as 70% would say they would get it. So, you know, on the high end, that's pretty good. The low end, I don't know, but um, so, you know, a lot of people are thinking they want to try to set a goal of about if, if, if we can, if we can vaccinate 70% of the population, I think that's, that's a, that's a good thing, but there's a whole lot of factors, you know, who already has antibodies and who do you go for first? And I, I don't feel that there will be, I don't think it'll be mandated for everyday life. I really, I, I'm, I really don't think it will. I mean, I mean, I will, I, as a healthcare provider, you know, I will receive it, um, and I know that I'm cer certainly hospitals will probably require, you know, people to, um, you know, to, to receive it if they're going to be around high risk individuals. But I, I don't think, I don't, I don't think you'll see a mandate for the general population. Um, but you know, schools could be. In, that's an interesting, uh, that's an interesting conundrum when it comes to school mandates and, and whether or not where COVID may play into that the COVID vaccine. Right. But, but vaccines for school and work have been a thing forever. And um, vaccines for any other areas, which they are concerned about, is a little bit of a different story. So me and Christina, personally, um, we're not as on board when it comes to mandates, especially if it was to travel, like to drive, you need a COVID vaccine. You know, that's just too far. And we both believe in voluntary vaccination. And I think, fingers crossed, Voluntary vaccination rates should be enough to prevent mandate pressure. I don't think there will be enough pressure from the public to mandate the vaccine because I think the compliance levels will be high because everybody is concerned about coronavirus. Do you have any thoughts on that, Christina? Um, no, just like you said, I think uh, there's enough um, you know, speculation on the seriousness that... Um, I think we've seen that even though 
uh, you know, there is a fairly low death rate. Like if you're looking at percentages, um, I think we've seen how easily it can transmit. And, um, you know, as a common talking point in vaccine talk is, is you'll have, you know, the highest percentage of people is going to be pro-vaccine. And then you have, you know, the next tier down of they're on the fence, whether, you know, they may, uh, you know, question, but they'll still get it. And then um, next you'll have those that question it just enough to, their hesitance is just enough to prevent them from getting it. And then you have those that will never get a vaccine for anything. No reason you could, you know, you could kill them before they would allow you near them with a needle. And, and, um, but I think, um, especially if we, um, you know, as a whole can get people to better understand what fast tracking is, um, I don't remember enough about the process to explain it myself. Um, but if we could get, you know, more people to understand that fast tracking doesn't mean that it's not being tested, um, there would be a higher level of um, willingness to get that vaccine. Um, that makes sense, actually. And, um, you know, I, I think there's still going to be that hesitancy in general, just because it is such a new vaccine. Um, you know, any new vaccine comes out, you're going to have even a certain percentage of highly, you know, pro-vax parents and, you know, adults, you know, go to consider it, but they want that time to kind of gauge what happens. Um, but it's, uh, so it's going to be like any other vaccine in that regard. Um, Gardasil is a good example. I mean, we're still, um, you know, I, I have my own thoughts on that, uh, but that's irrelevant in this particular discussion. Um, where we've had it for, um, you know, regular use for like coming up on, you know, 15 years at least. I think it had just started, um, you know, really heavily being used when I was going into uh, middle school. And, you know, it had only started really being pushed um, in my like sixth or seventh, uh, seventh grade year. And um, we still have people that are kind of hesitant, but it seems like the levels have been steadily increasing. So I think the coronavirus vaccine is going to have kind of a similar uh, rate where um, as people have the chance to see what, uh, have a chance to see uh, what reactions do or don't happen and, you know, how, it, you know, we're living in this particular example, we're living, we're going to see live results of what the vaccine does or doesn't do. And which will directly, for our generations, um, will directly affect the trust or distrust of it. Yeah, that's true. What do you think about that, Dr. Sears? Because I think Christina made an interesting point. Um, do you think that it's true that if you kill people, fast tracking is still a process of safety data and investigation into efficacy? And it's not just whipping up a vaccine in your kitchen and giving it to everyone. Uh, do you think that would probably make it to where more people voluntarily vaccinate so mandates aren't even on the table? Because personally, I would like it where everyone voluntarily vaccinates. I, I like the idea of voluntary interactions. So if we could get everyone yeah. to do it on their own, no exemptions, that's uh, that's perfect. Yeah. Right. And I, I think I, I, you know, hey, I agree with it. And then like I mentioned earlier the, with the Moderna vaccine, I mean, they're, they're going to recruit 30,000 30, individuals to do, to do the phase three trial. And I think you'll, you'll see people that wouldn't otherwise be riveted at their computer screens trying to follow the rotavirus vaccine trials or the 
you know, the other one, you know, they this, but they, people will be actively invested and observing these in real time as it unfolds and, and almost in, in some way, just allowing themselves to almost be participants in a, in a strange way, because, you know, because then they will be considering receiving this product. So, I mean, I think that since it's so in the media and these studies are being followed and be easily followed by any layman out there, I think that there will be, hopefully, as you said, Christine, I'm, uh, hopefully there will be maybe some increased trust. Um, right now, the polls I'm seeing, I'm not sure if y'all seeing different polls. I mean, anywhere from the 50 and 70% of Americans are saying they'll get the, they'll get the shot or they get the COVID vaccine. Um, but hopefully, you know, hopefully we'll see those numbers closer to that higher end, assuming it's deemed safe and, and effective. I mean, we're kind of, kind of, uh, <laughs> going ahead, getting ahead of ourselves there anyways, but uh, yeah. Right. Well, I think that's an optimistic note to end the discussion on. Do either of you have anything to add? Do you want to throw in on the top? Maybe a cherry to put on the Sunday? Um, if, you're in, if you're indoors in public, please just wear a mask. <laughs> we're, finding, okay. we're finding more and more about that, that the data is showing, look, if you're indoors, especially if you can't social distance, um, you know, it's, it's, it's working, it's working. And, and, um, obviously the other things are important to, um, washing your hands and, and keeping the social distances. Don't go out if you don't, you know, if it's not necessary, but, um, and stay safe. <laughs> so hopefully. Sorry, we're doctor. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. And Christine, do you have anything else you want to add before we talk about where we're going to continue the discussion after? Um, just, uh, the fact that, um, we, we really need to collectively get better at washing our hands. It's kind of interesting how many people know. Uh, what was that? For 20 seconds, there's this trick. Wash your hands like you just marinated jalapenos and you're about to itch your eyes. Oh, I know it. Great strategy. Uh, actually, really you can do a, to a trial where you actually do marinate a jalapeno and see how long you do wash your hands. But uh, yeah, I would... I would agree with that as well. So I want to thank both of you for coming on. Uh, go ahead. Oh, so one more thing. I think a great topic because I think I see the comments, um, and and I think this would be a great topic for another um, another discussion. Is the issue of of, of mandates, and we, this has come up, you know. But I think that's a whole that's a, that's a whole episode in of itself. So I'd love to be able to do that um, in the future with regards yeah. to school and whatnot. The um, first episode of my other vaccine show, Bridging the Gap, uh, Paul Offit discussed mandates with my friend Lynette Marie Barron, and uh, she leans more um, hesitant against vaccines, and they're both friends, so it was a real great discussion, but it's something that should be explored further. So this was a great talk, and I want to continue it. So this conversation is going to continue in Vaccine Talk. So Vaccine Talk is the group Christina was talking about earlier that she went into and found information about vaccines. You can be anti-vaccine, pro-vaccine, it doesn't matter. Search the hashtag straight to the point. Um, so real quick, I'll show you guys the group so you can see it. Man, I love that effect. So just go type in vaccinetalk.org, enter, and then you'll be in the group. And so here you are. You can search, search straight to the point and you'll find the discussion for this episode and hopefully we see both of you guys in there peter and christina are you guys both in the group 
I, I'm I'm on. Yeah, I'm in vaccines talks. I won't be able to write. I won't be able to write now. I might get on at, uh, later on this evening. I I got to run a little bit now and do some other stuff. But I'll be I'll be there. Great, cool. So that's where we will continue the discussion. And this is a podcast now, straight to the point. So um, it's under the Lucid Truth. So if you want to follow it, it's on lucidtruth.com, the Lucid Truth YouTube channel. And if you just have a podcast here like Spotify or iTunes, you can just search straight to the point. But um, I recommend the YouTube channel because if you listen to it on a, on a podcatcher, you can't get the visuals and can't see our faces and you can't see the data. But at least you get the audio still. So thank you guys both for coming on again. I hope we can have some future discussions and I will see everyone in vaccine talk. So see you there. Thanks, everyone. You can find and support the podcast at our website, straighttothepointshow.com. And the podcast is also available on YouTube, iTunes, Spotify, and other podcatchers. So thank you for listening. And I hope to see you for the next episode of Straight to the Point.